Welcome, everyone. I'm Emily Click, Assistant Dean for Ministry Studies. And in a moment, I'll introduce our two conversation partners who will lead our time together. But first, I'd like to give some background about our purpose in inviting Mayor Stephanie Rawlings-Blake here to be with us today. Our event is part of our Divinity School's Leadership and Administration class. In the course, we explore diverse contexts in which our graduates will lead. These are churches, sanghas, synagogues, but also shelters for feeding the homeless, various positions in public service, not-for-profits, hospitals, and so forth. And we learn how to lead communities who will cooperate on what we call adaptive problems. Now, adaptive problems is a phrase um, coined by my Harvard colleague, Ron Heifetz. These are the kind of problems that aren't easy to solve, or even label, or even understand. Adaptive, as opposed to technical problems, have no quick fix. These situations, therefore, require learning and sustained effort in the face of disappointment and failure. You've got to recognize when people go through loss. If you want them to change, you have to let them grieve. So we need many kinds of resources to lead communities beset by complex challenges, but here at HDS we especially value our spiritual practices. This summer, a number of faculty and staff, including Cheryl Giles and Karen King, Stephanie Paulsell, Tim Welsky, and others, began working together to build more inclusive learning spaces. Our dean of the Divinity School, David Hempton, supports this initiative with generous funding for programs such as this one today. When I planned for this semester's leadership class, I wanted to bring someone who had stood strong while leading a community through difficult dilemmas. I immediately thought of the Honorable Stephanie Rawlings Blake, Mayor of Baltimore. I've admired her from afar as she led her community through a series of difficult challenges. I know this is not easy work, but it is deeply meaningful. I wanted my students and I to listen to this woman, to hear her wisdom that she's garnered about how you sustain your spiritual energy, your focus, your sense of purpose over time. And conveniently enough, I also knew that a recent graduate of ours coincidentally had gone to high school with the mayor. After. <laughs> so I asked Melissa to help us reach out to invite the mayor, and so we do owe Melissa a special thanks for helping us bring Mayor Rawlings-Blake here today. Melissa Bartholomew, whom we've asked to interview the mayor, graduated from HDS in 2015 and enrolled immediately in a dual program for a master's as well as a PhD in social work at Boston College. Prior to attending HDS, Melissa practiced law for a decade in Washington. Throughout her professional life, she has focused on helping communities heal from racial trauma. She's worked as a public interest lawyer and as a mediator. Here at HDS, she helped establish a group that fosters racial healing and justice. She continues to focus her social work studies on gaining deeper knowledge about healing trauma. Melissa, we welcome you back to HDS, and we know you're just the right person to interview the mayor. The Honorable Stephanie Rawlings-Blake was, was sworn in as Baltimore's 49th mayor. <laughs> I was doing so well. <laughs> well, she was also sworn in as <laughs> her first full term as mayor in November of 2011, receiving 87% of the vote. <laughs> Mayor Rawlings-Blake has focused her administration on growing Baltimore's population by 10,000 families over the next decade, by improving public safety and public education, and by strengthening city neighborhoods. Mayor Rawlings-Blake became the 73rd president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors in June of 2015 and concluded her service in June of 2016. 
She was also elected to a top leadership position in the Democratic National Committee to serve as secretary and gaveled in the Democratic National Convention this summer. She is a graduate of Baltimore's Western High School. I thought you might say something like, go Ooh. high school or something, yeah. We are in our high school colors. And yeah. as, as am I. <laughs> she earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in political science from Oberlin. She, yeah. <laughs> She received her JD from the University of Maryland Law School. Somebody's probably cheering out there. <laughs> and, and she's a member of Douglas Memorial Community Church. She lives in Baltimore's Cold Spring neighborhood with her husband, Kent Blake, and their young daughter, Sophia. As we turn to you, Mayor, we welcome you. And we hope you'll feel free to share with us the many ways that you maintain your resilience because you have led your wonderful city and you have offered hospitality to so many of us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Click, for that introduction and for welcoming us. Um, and I just want to thank you for orchestrating this. I have to say that uh, my last semester at the Divinity School uh, was during the time of the unrest, and actually it was a week of the unrest that our last class fell, uh, uh, and my, our last class in administration and leadership, and uh, Professor Flick graciously allowed us to, as a class, just convene and talk and share and, and uh, uh, just lament together. So I, I thank you for that and for continuing to um, bridge the gap between the outside world and the instruction, the ministry that, that goes on here, so thank you. Thank you, Mayor Rawlings-Blake, for being here. Before we begin, we would like to just take a moment of silence. There's yeah. been a loss in our community, our Harvard Divinity School community, the loss of Harry Huff. Um, so we'd like a moment of silence for him and his family, and we'd also like a moment of silence for the, the citizens of Baltimore. Baltimore just recently experienced the loss, uh, a tragic bus crash involving a school bus and an MTA bus. Um, so we just want to take a moment to breathe deeply and just to be still and quiet as we reflect on the lives that we have lost. Thank you. As we transition into our theme, spiritually resilient leadership in the midst of adaptive problems. Um, as Professor Click mentioned, the mayor and I go back to high school and uh, we are proud graduates of Western Senior High School, the oldest all-girls public high school in second the country. Oldest, second, the second Philly, oldest, Philly's Philly. uh, girls high is That's a little right. bit older than us. The only one remaining all Yeah, girls. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Still standing. And at Western, um, we have a tradition where the upperclassmen take under their wings freshmen. So Stephanie was my big sister in high school. And uh, I she, think I did pretty well. She, <laughs> she has been my big sister ever since um, and has modeled grace and leadership that was instilled in us as Westernites ever since. So if I happen to slip up during our conversation and call her Stephanie, you'll know why. <laughs> So again, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's always good to see you. Thank you. And I do take full credit for all of your I, success. I always, <laughs> I always give you full credit. Absolutely. So I thought I would begin. But she should also say that the tradition was uh, carried on because uh, then I helped. I picked out her little sister, she and she's also very successful. Yeah. So I feel like I have a very strong legacy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The sisterhood is strong at Western. And so I'm, much so that without talking to each other, we have shown yeah. up in our high school colors. So. Yeah, yeah we, this, this was not planned, and Professor Click did not know either. So, uh, the well, we have a strong connection. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the connection is strong. Um, and and I'm, I'm deeply grateful for that and for our connection. And I want to begin our conversation by framing what we mean by spirituality. Um, here at HCS, we um, 
we, we, we speak in those terms broadly, the term spirituality, we use it broadly, it means different things to different people. It's a, you know, we refer to spirituality as a, a way of grounding ourselves and centering ourselves. I like to think of it as um, prioritizing our connections to each other over our positions, so that when we engage in conversations and work together, specifically work related to racial justice, um, we come from that place of groundedness and that heart-to-heart -heart connection. So it's in that spirit that we invite this conversation with you this afternoon. So, I would love for us to hear from you. Who or what has been your source of inspiration throughout your political career? You were the first, um, I think the youngest person to be elected to the city council in Baltimore. You've had a long public service career. Very long. <laughs> so what, has, what sustained you? What has sustained you over this time? So it's different. Inspiration and uh, sustaining are two, for, be two different uh, things. Inspiration will be, uh, would be my family. Um, I grew up in uh, northwest Baltimore, the daughter of uh, a pediatrician. My mom's a retired pediatrician. She went to medical school at a time where there were very, very few African Americans in medical school, especially University of Maryland Medical School, and, and uh, far fewer women. Uh, and um, I grew up understanding what that meant, how important that was, and, and she didn't do it for us to be rich. She was a community, uh, she worked as in our community to make sure that people, regardless of their ability to pay, had quality health care for their children. And that was very important to her. And, and my father, who is uh, deceased, was an elected official, public servant, very, very uh, highly regarded in our state. When he passed, he was the chairman of the Appropriations Committee. And since I, uh, the time I was in elementary school, he was in public service with a focus on empowering our community, making uh, our city better and making it better for generations to come. He was a very strong education advocate uh, and accountability advocate and an advocate for excellence, even when that conversation was difficult in our um, community. So I grew up seeing that. Uh, I grew up understanding that the the, the education that we had, the experience that we had, um, weren't for us to become personally enriched. Uh, not that I think that my parents had anything against money, they just weren't, that, they weren't motivated um, by it. Um, but uh, we were taught that we were to use our skills and our talents to make our world better. Uh, I think it's part of the Methodist creed, right? <laughs> Somebody can tell me. <laughs> I'm on target. I'm on target. Um, so, you know, that, that is what inspired me. So I knew from a very uh, early age, and um, you know, I think I say this and people say, you have to be kidding, you can't be that much of a nerd, but it's true. I mean, I knew what I wanted to do since I was in like third or fourth grade. Um, and planned out how I was going to get there. So I started running for office when I was in middle school. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my first and only uh, loss in my election was to Anthony Watson in the eighth grade. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm so glad I'm funny. I was like, this is not intentional. I'm really just telling you. <laughs> my story. So I went from there, and you know I was an SG of student mm -hmm. government at Western in yeah. high school, and then I did uh, student government in uh, college and was on young, in Young Democrats. And I actually ran for office the first time, public office, while I was still in college. I, was, uh, I ran and won a seat on the Democratic State Central Committee, the organizing committee for the Democratic Party. So I started in 1990. Um, in elected office. The first um, city council position was 95. So I'm saying all of that to say my inspiration was rooted in the work that my family did and understanding and from a very early age that you could make a difference in your community in meaningful ways. Um, as far as what sustained me, I'll have to say um, spiritual, my spiritual grounding broadly and also a very, very, very strong um, family and friend support group that is amazing. Um, I'm you know, one of the things I think growing up the, the uh, daughter or the child of an elected official 
if you, if you also grow up with humility, I think is a sense of discernment about um, friends, right? And people who, you know, when you grow up, and I'm very uh, grateful that my daughter seems to have it as well, you sort of know who's around you because of you and who's around you because of everything else. Um, and being able to weed um, those people who um, don't really want a true connection to me, the person, has uh, allowed me to surround myself with people I know who sincerely care about me. And no matter what position you're in, um, when you're going through t something tough, if you are blessed enough to have that around you, you are truly, truly blessed and favored because um, you know, life is tough and you don't know when tough is gonna happen, but if you have that support group around you, it, it, it matters. I know that was a very long answer, oh, that's sorry. That's beautiful, thank you. Well, I know that when you take on the leadership of a city, it's a calling, mm -hmm. um, but I also imagine there are times when you have to renew and check in and remember why you are doing what you're doing. So are there places in Baltimore where you go or things that you do in Baltimore to reconnect to the city and its people? Mm. Outside of happy hour, right? <laughs> hey! <laughs> Wherever you go that reminds you, okay, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. <laughs> if it's happy hour. No, so, I, look, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I live and breathe Baltimore, so it's not like I need to be reminded. I love my city, and um, and I know it. It would sound corny to me if I heard it, so I'm just going to tell you I know it sounds corny, but like I know that I sincerely, uh, in my heart, understand that even on my worst day, I was blessed to be able to do what I did, mm -hmm. you know, and to to have a job that I feel totally called uh, to do and something that um, makes a difference. I know that there are people who live and die and never for a day get a chance to, to work in a job that they feel called to do, in a job that they feel makes a difference. So, you know, I, don't, I, I wake up every day knowing how blessed I am to do what I do. I don't, that doesn't, that spirit doesn't need to be renewed. For, for me, it's like, it's the engine. In your love for Baltimore, um, and that includes the challenges and just the complexities of it, it's a city that, is, uh, that has a history of racial inequality. Some people characterize it as there being two Baltimores. Um, Mostly people who benefit from the perpetuation of two Baltimores. Okay. So my next question was gonna be, do you agree with that assessment? <laughs> um, and and uh, when you speak on that, how do you as mayor approach leadership of a city that has multi-generational problems, mm -hmm. um, steeped, you know, rooted in racial inequalities and economic uh, divestment. How do you approach um, a city with the long-standing history that it has, the complexities? It's tough um, because everybody has a different priority or a different belief about the challenges that you should tackle first. Um, some people feel very strongly that until you cure our city or our world of racial disparities, the rest of the stuff is extra, right? Like that's the work. Um, you know, for some people, there's, there are other things that are priority, you know, economic disparities, health disparities. All, everybody has their own set of things that are, um, you know, they're, they're, top, they're listed top things. Um, so I, for me, I know what I value, and, was, and that was um, in the midst of an imperfect, world and certainly an imperfect city uh, that I was going to try to do as much good as I could as long as I was there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I focused on the things that I knew would make a difference for um, this next generation. I, I was very, very clear that I wanted to leave the city in a better condition than it was left for me. Um, my daughter is 13. She was, you know, however many years younger. She was, what, seven or eight when I took uh, office. And it was very important for me 
to um, ensure that I was making Baltimore better for, for her and for generations to come, because that's what I saw. You know, um, my dad was a big advocate for education and um, the, the work that helped to make our Baltimore City school system better was a city-state partnership that my dad was a big advocate for. And that's one of the things I said he took a lot of heat for, but it really paved the way for, um, you know, the, the, the improvements, laid the groundwork for the improvements in the school system. And he, had, he did it in a time where he didn't have one child in the public school system. You know, my uh, granddaughter, he, you know, he didn't have any uh, grandkids at the time, but that was, he did it for generations yet to be born, so I saw that powerful work. So I wanted to um, make sure that I focused on education and making sure that I continued that work. So for me, one of the most impactful m moments in time uh, as far as my administration and having, being so in the moment clear about what I was doing and why was when the governor signed the legislation to um, that um, enabled us to get a billion dollars for uh, school construction mm. because we have the oldest schools in the country, I mean sorry, in the state, excuse me, the oldest public schools in the state by far. Um, many of our, well you can't, uh, except for the newly built buildings, you can't drink from the water fountains. Um, you, the, the wind, you can't see out of many of the windows, they're fog, uh, the, it's you know, hot when it's supposed to be cold, cold when it's supposed to be hot, ceiling tiles are coming in, you know, falling in, leaking, uh, roofs, I visited one school that every time it rains the little preschoolers have to drag the little desk down and set up in the, um, set up in the, in the gym, excuse me, because they can't use their classroom and to me, I know that you can't, um, we, we cannot expect our young people to value education when they go to school every day in conditions like that. And we certainly can't expect them to have an understanding of how we value them in our society if we al allow them to continue to go to school in conditions like that. So I worked really, really hard over multiple years to um, get this legislation passed. And when the, the governor signed that, that piece of legislation, it was it was like one of my aha moments because I knew, you know, um, much as my dad knew um, because when he passed he had been very sick and he knew, you know, it was, um, his diagnosis wasn't good, but he had this calm that I did not understand until that moment. Mm -hmm. um, because I knew if I closed my eyes for the last time that what I had done will have changed the trajectory of the lives of young people for generations to come. In thinking of challenges like, like the education uh, challenge you just referred to, leadership obviously requires collaboration. Mm -hmm. So how have you been able to mobilize people um, within the administration, on the ground, in the community, to address various challenges along the way? For instance, after the uprising, uh, after the death of Freddie Gray, how, how were you, you able to mobilize folks? By not starting from scratch, really. Um, the relationships that I, that I really relied upon during the unrest and afterwards weren't new relationships. You know, the reason why we were able to bring calm so quickly to the streets um, was, wasn't because I was calling pastors up for the first time and asking, can you help us? It was because we had relationships. It wasn't because I was reaching out to community leaders and saying, can you stand with me you know, let me introduce myself to you. You know, these were people that I had um, relationships with. And um, I think uh, when you do, for me, sorry for that, when you, when you do what you're doing for the right reasons, you, you establish these relationships. And it is, you have the ability to, to go to these people that you need. Um, you know, that kind of, the, we say the fabric of the community, you know, stitching together the fabric, like it, it literally felt like it. Because, you know, you had people coming together from different, um, different ages, different races, different religions, different parts of the city really coming together to, to be that, the safety net that the city needs. That being said, uh, the challenge that I experienced in Baltimore, and I think we are seeing today play out in the, in, um, some sense in the 
presidential campaign is there are some people that don't want to be a part of that fabric. They derive their, their pleasure or purpose in being antagonistic to, um, uh, to progress, antagonistic to um, solutions. And, and I don't necessarily even mean that they are in that space on purpose sometimes. Um, I think sometimes anger and frustration, um, you know, people, you know, I, I think young people say now you get all in your feelings, you know what I mean? Like people like to be in that space and sometimes when you're in that space, the solutions, like you, you can't see to the solution, you know, that, um, and I say that because, you know, there were several times during the unrest and subsequently that we've interacted with some groups, and I, I don't want to, you know, I'm not I'm painting with a broad brush, but some groups that were very fr uh, frustrated, angry, you know, all amped up and wanted, um, and, you know, like were either sitting in or protesting or things like that. And when we um, approached, you know, to try to meet some common ground so we can figure out, okay, we hear you, you know, how can we, like help us figure out like what the issue is, how can we fix it? Um, it was very hard to articulate um, what those things were. Do you know what I mean? So, um, and I get it. Sometimes it takes a minute to get from anger to you know to or you know to progress or to to change. But um, it's difficult when people are in that space and they're frustrated and they don't um, they can't articulate. Um, what progress looks like, what justice lo looks like, you know what I mean? So if you're sitting there talking to somebody and says, we're gonna, we're, you know, we're gonna stay, stay here until we have justice. Okay, well, what does justice mean? We'll know it when we see it. I'm like, well, let me know. <laughs> you know, because I can't, you know, it's, it's hard, right? So um, that has been a challenge, and I don't think it's just for me. It's, it's, I think it's, it is um, where we are as a country right now. People are so deeply uh, hurt, angry, fearful, and with so much distrust or mistrust of, of everything. Um, you know, they don't even know how to get to better or to describe you know, what that looks like. And that, that leads me to my next question. What do you think is missing? What are some of the things that are missing from the conversations um, that are centered around bridging the, the, the divides, the racial divides, the cultural divides, the economic divides. What do you think has been missing from the conversation? That's a big, that's a, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's a tough question. I don't, I think if, I think I would be able to make more progress in those problem spots if I had a, if I knew what was missing. I don't know. Um, I don't know what's missing. Like, I, I mean, I think about it a lot in the context of when I see um, the political rallies now, and people are just so, so angry. You know, when you see um, people, like black people kicked and punched in um, Trump rallies, like that's, you know, like there's a lot of hate and it's all like, I think a lot about you know, how do we, you know, there, I know that there's no magic fix to this, but somebody has to be thinking about what we do on the other side of this. You know, you have people, um, young people, primarily in countries around the, I mean, in cities around the country, um, protesting around racial justice and um, criminal justice issues. Um, you have a lot of middle America mad about immigration and um, economic opportunity. And at the end of the day, it, it's troubling to me that we seem to be okay just there. Mm. You know, that there's not more of a, a national conversation on how we are going to get to a place of mutual respect where we can really hear each other and not just, you know, yell at each other and try to figure out how we can get to better because there isn't anything, um, it might be cathartic, but it doesn't seem to be productive, what I've seen. 
I think you answered the question. You know, the idea of inserting into the conversation, getting to better, and how we how we get there, how we see our com our common ground, our common pains and hurts, um, and listening to each other. Then I would say that mutual respecting is, respect. is what's is what's missing, um, because I think we have allowed. Um, this demonization, mm -hmm. right? The, you know that that if someone has a different opinion than you do, then they're not just. It's, there's no, uh, you know, honest minds can differ. Like you're evil, mm -hmm. right? Like that. That is not productive. I wanted to also go back to um, the characterization of the two Baltimores, because mm -hmm. um, you responded to that. So I would love for you to maybe speak to that and. Right. So I, and I, I'll just so you're gonna have to lasso me in because I know I can go meandering yeah, around. You're, per, you're perfect. You're perfect. Um, but when I when we talked about two Baltimores and I, you know, kind of flippantly said those are that benefit from that. There are people that um, benefit uh, from and perpetuate, you know, this otherness, right? This um, this notion that, for example, we just had a big. Um, you all are familiar with Under Armour, right? So they're a, a local company, and they there's a development development group that was um, looking to uh, build a major like their world headquarters so they could expand in Baltimore. <clears throat> when I mention that outside of Baltimore, most people are just like, "Dag, well, I wish they would have done it in our city, right?" And this is an area, and I mean, you know, it, it's um, South Baltimore, um, uh, Port Covington down by the where the, the Sun Papers are. It's like nothing uh, really there. Now, it's, it is adjacent to uh, about six communities, but literally it's like a nothing. Like they're building from nothing. Um, and in order to do it, uh, in order to make the development affordable, we uh, did tax incremental financing. Um, and we did that because unlike in rich jurisdictions where they can put in infrastructure and hope somebody builds, we can't do that in Baltimore. Um, and the way to finance the infrastructure work that's required, the public infrastructure work that's required to allow for that development to happen is the TIF financing. You would have thought that we were going into every impoverished home and taking food off of their plate. Mm in order to do that by the way some elected officials dis decided to describe this uh, deal. Um, where I was very focused on the fact that this was a way to create jobs in Baltimore. And not just these kind of, uh, kind of jobs, like you know, these jobs out in the universe that you don't know who's going to get. No, we were very specific mm -hmm. in the construction part and after the requirements for um, how many uh, jobs for local people would be created. I also know that when you have um, a public-private partnership like this, it's a way to help build wealth in our community by having inclusion of minority and women-owned businesses mm -hmm. and local business. And you know, I knew like that this wasn't a great opportunity for that. Um, but and and. I also knew that it was an opportunity to show what was possible when communities mm -hmm. and developers came together mm -hmm. at the table with mutual mm -hmm. respect mm -hmm. and uh, determined uh, moving forward how the impacted community uh, would benefit from the public subsidy. And I say that because the, 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 they call themselves the South Baltimore Six, the six communities that abutted the community sat down with the developer. and. Um, in their own voice, and talked about the things that were important to them in their community on the workforce, the, the workforce training, the employment uh, part, uh, education, um, beautification in the community. They, they had the whole list of what they wanted, and um, the uh, development team hammered out an agreement, and they stood together and said, we're good. Like, we know that this is going to have an impact on our community. And we've been able to sit down at the table and, and 
very clearly for ourselves on our own terms say, you know, what are the things that we want to make sure happen out of this. Um, and then there are some people who benefit from this um, two Baltimore notions that um, were characterizing this effort in such a way that people were angry hmm. about it. Um, they said, we'll be less angry if you give us a million dollars for this. Right? We'll be less noisy if you give us you know, $10 million for this, right? Um, which you know, I think is wrong for a number of reasons. But um, you know, so there are people that benefit from this perpetuation of this notion that it's us against them. Um, I'm hopeful um, that, as led by this community group, the, the, this South Baltimore Six that came together, that, that really was clearly showing, like, look, this is not them against us. This is us finding a way to come together so we can move the city forward. My hope is that so that feeling prevails mm -hmm. and really expands in the, in the city so we can stop fighting our opportunities to have progress. Thank you. Thank you. Leadership, I mean, you've described so much, and there are always challenges associated with leadership and in, in the interest of spiritual resilience and, and, and thinking about resiliency. When you encounter missteps or setbacks, how do you sustain yourself? Like, how do you get back to your center um, as a result of certain challenges? I think you have to have a certain amount of forgiveness for yourself. Um, and I think it, it is, for me, easier to have that sense of forgiveness of mistakes that I've made because I forgive others. Um, so I'm not um, doing something for myself that I don't do for, for other people. I do not expect people to be perfect. Uh, when someone makes an error, I, my first instinct is not to assume that there was uh, malintent, right? Um, so um, while I, I work very, very hard and I strive to practice excellence, I fall short sometimes. But what I also try to practice is things that I know work and beating up on yourself and dwelling in a failure. I have never seen that to be helpful. I think that it also speaks to the other question about what you bring to the table, what's missing from the conversation, um, the conversation about bringing sides together. Bringing forgiveness and embodying that um, is powerful. Yeah, it's difficult though, um, because some people want forgiveness but don't can't articulate what they um, like for what. You know what I mean? You know, it, it, and that's what I'm saying. It's like these are tough conversations because right now I think people are just hurting, and uh, until we're able to, and I mean that's the work you're doing, right? <laughs> like until you can find a way to to articulate that pain, that problem, you can't fix it. And I think in too many parts of our community, and that's the broader American, you know, our, this, in this country, uh, it's just a lot of pain without people being able to really articulate why they're hurting. You know, they'll say it's because of opportunity, but, I mean, or they, you know what I mean, they could say it's because of, you know, lack of jobs, but is that really um, the thing? Now, it might be, but, to me, there are a lot, well, I, I was about to get into a political conversation. I'll, I'll, I'll save that. I think just on a practical, on a practical level, Mayor, though, mm -hmm. what you articulated was starting first with forgiving yourself. Mm -hmm. And then when you come from that place of forgiving yourself, then it allows you to then see through eyes of forgiveness and you treat others with more compassion. So that simply is what I was referring to in terms oh, of yeah. bringing that to the table, mm -hmm. like modeling that, and then that, that, that's shared. Um, so that's a quality that, that's important. So thank you. So you're coming to the close of your term. <laughs> so I have to ask how you feel about that. <laughs> what would you, you mentioned, you talked earlier about the education achievement, and that may be the answer to this question, what is your greatest achievement? 
number one. And number two, if you had more time, hmm. what would you like to focus on? So I'll answer the second one okay. first. Okay. I don't do things like that, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? In the sense that I made up my mind that I wasn't running. I, uh, I prayed a lot before I made that decision. And once I accepted that that was my decision, I also accepted that December the 6th at noon, I'm done. So I'm very focused on doing as much as I can um, every day until then. But I am not, I don't, you know, I'm, I don't spend a second thinking, if I had one more month, if I had one more term, like I don't do that at all. Um, um, yeah, so that's the second part. The first part about what I'm most proud of, you know, I'm really, I, I was focused on making our city better than the condition that it was when, I, when it was left to me. And um, when uh, my first budget as mayor, so I got sworn in December 4th, 2010. Um, the fifth was the beginning of Snowmageddon. So, yeah, all right. I'm like, lucky me. And it was, um, it was crazy. It was two weeks, basically, of living, basically living in a snow emergency room. Um, and when the snow, I mean, that's all, I mean, I could spend an hour talking about that, but I won't. But when the snow thawed, you know, I thought, you, you kind of think you've been through one kind of ridiculous, enormous um, challenge um, that on the other side of that, things might be easier. You know what I mean? Like, you, you're hopeful, right? Like, it can't keep going. Um, but um, when the snow thawed, it was time to uh, really dig into the budget, and we had the largest budget deficit that the city's had in over 20 years. Uh, compounded by a structural budget deficit that people in my position have known about for decades. Um, that have been unaddressed. So I think it was in that time of trying to figure out like what I did in my life to, you know, for this to be the way I come in as mayor. You know, the, the previous mayor has to resign because of theft. And in 30, literally I was on the treadmill and they said, get down to City Hall. Uh, you were going to be mayor in 30 days. I was like, really? You know what I mean? And then, you know, to go from that, like horrible circumstances. You think people are mad at politicians now. I mean, like it was not a good place in the city uh, as far as ethics and things like that with uh, elected officials. And to, you know, to go straight from that into Snowmageddon into the worst budget that we've had, I was like, you know, it gave me a lot of time to think, well, I felt that I was a nice person. You know what I mean? Like I don't remember doing anything like intentionally mean to anybody, like maybe like by accident, you know what I mean? But like, so I'm thinking to myself, well, and it, you know, it can get, those are long hours in this no emergency room. So I'm looking around, I'm just like, well, if I didn't do something, what y'all must have done something <laughs> to get us into this position. But, you know, it's kind of half joking, but half serious. And it made me think, I was like, you know, this might not be any of my fault, but it's my responsibility, right? And it's certainly not my daughter's fault or her peers or the ones that come after you to fix up this mess, right? So it was in that time that it really crystallized in my mind that I had a duty to make things better than the way they were left for me. So I tackled the structural deficit, the first city to have a long-term financial plan. We uh, cut the, uh, the structural budget deficit by more than half. The city now has the highest bond rating they've had in over 50 years. Um, We've had a problem, as you know, is well documented in HBO and everywhere else. We had a problem with vacant houses, uh, abandoned uh, houses and, and uh, vacant lots. The city now has the first comprehensive blight elimination plan that's been, that is being modeled in other cities around the, the, um, the country. Uh, I focus not just on cleaning up ethics, but cleaning up government, you know, taking a, a look every day in the different ways that we uh, conduct uh, the government so we can work to, to make things better. So we've had a problem with water billing. We, I've uh, totally revamped our, the way that we're, that, um, and, and modernized the water billing system. Is it without, it bumps in the roads? Absolutely not. But the easier thing would have been to just leave it the way it was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm, that's not who I am. Mm 
I refused to kick the can down the road. And, as, and I was determined that if there was a difficult decision that was to be made, it was mine to make, not to pass along to uh, whoever um, succeeds me. You mentioned HBO. You know, when, when people find out I'm from Baltimore, a lot of people immediately go and ask me, uh, so have you seen The Wire? And is Baltimore like The Wire? So a lot of people associate The Wire with Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And now, after the uprising, they associate the uprising mm -hmm. with Baltimore. What are some other moments in the history of Baltimore that you would like people to connect with? Hmm. I mean, I, so, I mean, the thing is, you can be, like, sometimes, I get, and it's less now, but I used to be frustrated with that. but. Um, you know, it's like you know the things that you have control over and, you know, deal with those and you know that there's a whole bunch of stuff you don't have any control over, so why obsess about them, right? Uh, it used to, I used to preoccupy myself with all the different ways that the, the negative depiction of Baltimore and the wire was hurtful, right? And it also used to frustrate me that while the people that made it uh, denied that it had any impact when it did have real serious fis fiscal impact on the city. They denied it, but when they did the next series, um, all the problems that we complained about and the fact that they only show one side of Baltimore when you see Treme, and Lord knows you know if we have problems, New Orleans has problems, right? But they decided that they were going to make sure that it, they didn't just focus on the problems, but they also talked about its rich history and culture, right? Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't admit that they uh, messed us over with the depiction, but then they fixed it. So I could obsess about that, but I, <laughs> I don't. But to the question about what I want people to know, like Baltimore, I, we're, we are blessed to have been raised in a city that makes a difference in the history of our country. Uh, and you know, I, I was given a, a talk at, at Fort McHenry, uh, the place where our uh, right off the shores of Fort McHenry is where our national anthem was written. And what um, I said at the time is, you know, people have a whole lot to say about Baltimore. Um, you know, our, our problems have been, um, you know, been laid bare uh, to the world. But people shouldn't forget that, um, you know, while we are a very divided country at a time where it was much worse as far as race relations in our, in our country and the conditions under which we live were much worse in the war 1812, um, when um, the British, you know, in the midst of this war, the, 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 second, the second war of independence as we call it, um, when the British were making advances when they had burned Washington and were coming to Baltimore to, to, to be next, right? To um, continue their advancement. It was people of all races, all sexes in Baltimore that held down the fort figuratively and literally and um, turned the tide, right? Otherwise, we'd all be speaking with a British accent. So I say that to say, um, that for me, when we sing the national anthem, which is a song about Baltimore and how we, um, as a city, fought back in that war, you know, I feel like at the end of it, y'all should just say thank you. <laughs> you know, because you know, it's for me, it's like you know, people want to talk all kinds of trash, but let's not forget, you know, there's a whole bunch of cities in this country that are real cute, real nice, but you know. When the stuff hit the fan, Baltimore's who showed up, and and um, we we have a lot to be proud of. To me, that is our story of resilience. Like we're Baltimore people, you say what they want. They they know that you know we're tough, we're resilient, and we own that. So with, with that, what is your vision for Baltimore? Where would you like to see it in the next 30 years? I know you want Where to it's going. Where is it going? It's going. So I was focused on growing the city by 10,000 families, and Baltimore is now the fourth fastest growing millennial. The millennial population in uh, the, the city is the fourth fastest growing in the country. Um, and to me, that is important for so many reasons. It's not just what people are thinking about Baltimore in this moment, but it's a sign about what people think is possible and where Baltimore is headed, which is very gratifying to me. It's also gratifying to me who's coming to Baltimore. The, the, there's um, a big influx of uh, the creative class. Mm 
uh, the, you know, artists of all kinds uh, that are moving to Baltimore, people that are known worldwide are moving. And every time, just like I take full credit for you, mm -hmm. I take full credit for, for all of that because it is these conditions under which uh, that, that, you know, that the, the foundation, the fertilization for this uh, stuff to happen, and it's not going to stop on December the 6th at noon. You know, it's going to continue. And I'm thrilled about it. Um, you know, I'm not silly enough to think that we don't have real problems, but we also have real promise. And I'm very, very enthusiastic about the fact that Baltimore is a growing city. Um, Baltimore is a city that is, has always been culturally rich and every time I think about who's coming to Baltimore and what that's going to mean as far as our cultural and artistic uh, future, I get excited. Um, when I think about the fact that we're um, in the top 10 places in the country for tech startups, I get excited. Um, because I know, not just today, but in the future, you, you can see where it's happened in other cities where it's caused, it, it has created a renaissance. So I know it's coming and I'm very, very, it, it is happening and it will continue and I'm very excited about it. We have a, uh, a very unique uh, city that is um, unlike many cities that are trying to be something different. We're not trying to be anything different. We're weird and we like it. Austin says it, we live it. Um, uh, you know, and, and I think that the, the people that are coming are embracing the Baltimore of it. You know, there are people that want to live in authentic neighborhoods, to go to, um, you know, that, that aren't looking for chain restaurants. You know, that, that um, and I don't have anything, against, you know, let me just make it clear, I had my Starbucks today. I don't have anything against it, but you know, it's, it's different, it's a mix, right? And um, that is happening in very real ways. And, um, knowing what I know about the development that's coming, about the, you know, the, like I said, the work with new schools and all that, it's like, I'm just very optimistic and very happy uh, that in a lot of the major challenges that we have, we're, we continue to make progress. Thank you. Well, we want to open it up for questions. We have um, about 15 minutes. So there are some mics that will be circulating. If anyone has any questions, for Mayor Rawlings Blake, we'll take a few. Thank you so much, um, Mayor Stephanie Rawlings Blake. Um, my classmate Antoine and I uh, prepared a question to just kick off the discussion. So, um, based off the Department of Justice reports, um, do you perceive a conflict of interest uh, with prosecutors and police departments? Uh, should we? What are your feelings about implementing a system of checks and balances within this re relationship? So one of the things that was lost during the, um, let me just back up. So to, to what, ask the first part again, sorry, I just wanna make sure I answer your specific question. I don't mind taking Melissa on a trip around the world <laughs> with my answers, but I wanna make sure I get, answer the. So based off the Yeah, just DOJ, questions. Yeah, so do you, perceive a conflict of interest between with the prosecutors and the police and the second one was should we implement a system of checks and balances right. so um, do I perceive there to be a conflict of interest not necessarily uh, um, there can be but I don't think uh, the system in itself creates that conflict um, I think, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's a, a conflict. I think um, in Baltimore, um, the police department worked very aggressively at my urging uh, to make sure that every bit of information um, that was needed was provided. Um, I think some people might perceive there to be a conflict because of the outcome the trial, um, but there were a lot of reasons for that, and I don't, I don't think a conflict of interest was a cause for that. Um, and as far as checks and balances, there needs to be more 
checks and balances and more accountability. That's why before the tragic death of Freddie Gray, I was advocating for more accountability uh, in the police department. And um, I was fighting a very, very lonely battle in our state's capital to have uh, reforms to the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights that would give the police uh, commissioner more tools in his toolbox to deal with police officers, not just that were accused, because we knew, you know, to get from to get from where we are to where we would like to be, and having to negotiate those things with the the police unions and organizations throughout the state, we knew that it was it's a long road. But we would we were trying to take the baby step of listen. If you've been convicted of a crime um, that will that puts you in jeopardy of you know a year more than a year uh, in prison, we would like the ability with to to this is convicted. Right? And we know the threshold for conviction. Um, we would like the, the, the police commissioner to have more authority in how to discipline you after that uh, guilty finding. And um, people were looking at me like I had three heads when I was down there trying to get this done. I was like, look, you have to understand. And I said at the time to the, the police union, I said, look, I said, things aren't going to stay the way they are. I said, I don't know when they're going to change. I said, but it's coming. And I said, that, I said, you have an opportunity to be the first police department in the country to embrace that change and to say that we want more accountability and we want to protect the officers, the good officers that are on the street, by holding those that don't need to wear the uniform accountable and be a part of that. And they refused. The, the Legislative Black Caucus didn't even vote on whether or not it should support the police reform. Now. After the death of Freddie Gray, as uh, Congressman Cummings says, Lottie Dottie and everybody was on board for uh, these police reforms. But just months earlier, so this was January, February, March, I was down in Annapolis, April was the death. Thank you. Question over there. Hi. Um, I was living in Baltimore for six years until this August. Um, I would, I think I was part Where? of the, uh, I was in Charles, kind of around Charles Village Station, I moved a lot, Station North Remington, Hamden, Charles Village, yeah. So I was <laughs> obviously part of that sort of millennial yeah, yeah. artist class I was teaching at MICA. Um, and I love Baltimore, I think it's great to be a millennial artist there. Um, but all of those areas that I just mentioned, you know, are rapidly gentrifying. Um, and I'm just, maybe not rapidly, <laughs> they're gentrifying a bit. Um, but you have to be careful when you, you, you use that word. Mm -hmm. I mean, because if you have the number of vacant homes mm -hmm. that you have in our city, and we've all agreed that that's a problem, filling it up with people, if you're going to also label that as a problem, right? So, so what, what are we to do? Yeah, I mean, so that was my question for you, is basically, so my friends and I who are living in those areas and, you know, teaching at Micah and we're all mm -hmm. writers or artists or whatever, like what contribution are we making to the residents in West Baltimore? Like what is the connection there? You got to be more specific. Um, just in terms of, so we're that you said we're the fourth fastest growing millennial population, mm -hmm. specifically, um, especially with artists. And again, like I really loved experiencing that there. But I often felt a real disconnect because we mentioned there are two Baltimores. There are so many Baltimores, right? I felt a real disconnect between that and the communities that were impacted by the uprising. Um, you know, what was shown in the media wasn't what was happening where I was living, which I was grateful for. But it feels like a big divide. So I'm just wondering what you view as sort of how that growing population of artistic millennials is going to impact the city as a whole. Well, I can say one of the things that I'm really pleased about is a lot of the the, the influx of populations that I'm seeing um, are African Americans that are coming you know, from New York and other places that want to do more than just buy a cheap house, uh, that they want to be a part of the communities. The disconnect isn't, there's nothing that says when you move to Baltimore and get a cheap house that you can't be a part of the community. Uh, some people are disconnected on purpose, and some people's purpose is to be connected. Um, and I'm extremely excited when I meet people that are moving for the purpose of uh, not just living in the community, but being a part of the community and um, bringing 
just as I feel like I brought my time and my talents, my experience to make things better, that people that are, people are moving to the city in that spirit and are very, very aware of um, not changing the core, you know, the, the, the characteristics, you know, the, they want things to be better, but they don't want it to not be Baltimore, you know what I mean? That they're focused on being a part of uh, these communities. So that, that excites me. Thank you. There's probably just time for one more. It might be two if I can answer quick, because sure. I know get we didn't get over the there. Yes. Okay, uh, my name is Fabrice. Uh, thank you so much for your presentation. My question is more specifically around, you said a lot of people are hurting and they have this anger and some of the solutions that, some of the, the theme you said was around mutual respect. And I'm trying to imagine, have this kind of more imagination into how would this translate into policy. I know you talked about public-private uh, partnership, mm -hmm. but have you seen in your, like, your journey across your political career, has there been like, like policy, practical ways into kind of bringing people to a space and, and or maybe fostering the sense of mutual respect? Definitely, I would, I would say, and, and one of the ways in which that is crystal clear for me in the work in my administration is the work that we're doing around health disparities and tackling health disparities. Um, you know, there's some zip codes, if you're born into that zip code, your life expectancy can be 20 or plus years longer than in some other zip codes in our city, and that should not be. Um, so one of, one of the things that we've done and incorporated into the way that we develop policy is something called health and all, where we, um, we strive. Now, do we get it right all the time? No. But we strive to, um, as we are um, creating policy and spending the city's resources, um, outside of like, you know, paychecks for people, outside of those salary costs. But the, the things we do, how can we improve, uh, are, are there things that we can do in this spend to help improve uh, health outcomes? And if so, what? And I think that is just one example of trying to come to the table with in, in mutual respect, because we didn't, when we developed that um, health disparities map and then also the priorities around how to get better, we didn't, it wasn't done at a university and presented to the community. It was um, very intentionally with exhaustive meetings with the community around, like, these are your numbers, what are we going to do about it? Uh, so then when we take that and then try to make sure that we're matching up our policy to it, I think is, a, is an example, one example of, um, you know, how we do, how we, um, strive to have mutual respect in policy decisions. Can we go over yes. here? Yes. Yeah. If we have time, I don't. Thank you for being here. My question is kind of a follow-up to what he just asked. So I appreciated you talking about respecting others and listening to opinions as a means to bridge racial and economic divides. But I was wondering how we work towards that when someone else's opinion can legitimize harm and violence towards marginalized groups, uh, such as like deporting undocumented people or advocating so that certain people don't get access to health care. So how do we bridge that divide when certain opinions may like, advocate for harm or violence? Can you give me another example of, a, of the opinion that's um, been about? Maybe like uh, not advocating for equitable education systems, so not wanting students that are, schools that are underperforming to get more access to like funding. Mm -hmm. So and it, you, you, for me, you bridge the divide by putting people in positions of power that um, understand that that's a problem, right? So as a part of my administration, um, I've focused on making Baltimore a welcoming city uh, for, uh, for new Americans, for immigrants, for everybody, uh, with the notion that from the top down, I'm making it clear that we're not, um, you know, this is not Arizona, we're not checking everybody for their, their papers. We understand that our, you know, as, as is said, and it's probably getting trite, but I believe our diversity is our strength, right? So you, you, value, um, you value that. So people, I think people, display their values and um, they live their values and what they make a priority. And when you look for people to support that 
um, are displaying those similar values, like that's how we get better. And when somebody is making it clear that they don't have respect uh, for marginalized communities, when they, uh, again, I don't want to get too political, but when people make it abundantly clear um, what their values are, we, ha we should also um, take notice of that as well and make sure that they're not in positions where they can, um, they're harmful and uh, divisive um, opinions can continue to hurt people. We are at the end of our time, and we just want to thank you, Mayor Rawlings-Blake, for taking time out of your busy, busy schedule to thank spend you. your afternoon with us here. We thank you for your insights and your wisdom and for uh, modeling your spiritual resilience. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We head out.